the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Zneimer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Provincial Health Minister Christine Elliott announced that local and provincial health networks will be merged into one super agency as part of the Ford government's plan to overhaul the system. The planned overhaul will see the government create this agency called Ontario Health. It'll consist of all 14 of the province's local health integration networks, or LINs as they're known, as well as other agencies like Cancer Care Ontario, eHealth Ontario, and the Trillium Gift of Life Network. Under the government's plan, health teams will be established to provide what Elliot calls seamless access to health services, including primary care, hospitals, home and community care, palliative care, residential long-term care, and mental health and addictions services. When a draft version of the bill was leaked late last month, the NDP warned that the system change would mean more privatization. But Elliot says we shouldn't worry. But should we? Libby put that to Francesca Grasso, a board member of the group Patients Canada, Dr. Nadia Lam, president of the Ontario Medical Association, which represents the province's doctors, New Democrat MPP Peter Tabbins, as well as Dr. Bob Bell, former Deputy Minister of Health and Long-Term Care and former CEO of the University Health Network. Dr. Bell began. Well, I think the minister did a fine job today of setting out a, a broad vision for her view of what the health system should look like and some of her concerns about the performance of the health system today. I think my chief concern with what she's saying is that this is by far, by far, the biggest change to the healthcare system in the last 50 years since, since Medicare began in Canada. It's an enormous change. And the minister was, uh, you know, she was eloquent today in saying there are parts of the Ontario health system that are performing at international levels of excellence. She mentioned Cancer Care Ontario and Trillium Gift to Life. My view as a cancer surgeon is that part of that excellence is determined by the fact that they have a laser focus on the tasks at hand for them in cancer and transplant care. And Libby, I worry about molding that, folding that into a big bureaucratic super agency and a super agency that's a large unknown to Ontarians right now. Who's going to be on the board? Who's going to be the CEO? Um, I think the minister did a great job of setting out a broad vision, but, you know, I think we're all worried about the details of implementation at this point. Francesca Grosso, what is your initial take on this? I'm very excited at the notion of giving block funding to a group of providers coming together uh, to who will actually have the accountability to get people through the system. Uh, I think that that is refreshing. I think it had to be done. I was specifically happy to see that the government is getting the government out from between the patient and the provider. We're bringing in our uh, two newer guests, and let's start with Nadia Alam. So what is your reaction to this, Nadia? The biggest thing that we're excited about is this idea of integration. Service integration is something we've been advocating for for a long time. And this is the first step towards bringing all the pieces of the healthcare system together in a more holistic way to better serve Ontario patients and their families. Okay, let's bring in uh, Peter Tabbins. Dr. Bell was saying that he thought Christine Elliott laid the concerns about this opening the door to more private health care to rest. Uh, would you agree with that? Uh, no, we don't. Everything that 
we understand to this point is that it opens the door to far more private businesses operating in the healthcare field. And we see that as a huge problem. We look at the United States where you've got a private for-profit dominated healthcare system that does not deliver what people need. So for us, uh, this thrust on the part of the Ford government to have even more for-profit opportunities is going to mean less care for people. Where do you see that, Peter? In, in the structure of the My Care, well, I gather there are now the Ontario health teams. Uh, just in the past, there were limitations on the kinds of delivery organizations that could be engaged, and that's been thrown open. So we're going to see for-profit companies. Where do we go next with this? Well, Libby, there's no doubt that our health care system is vital to us. It makes a huge difference in people's lives on a daily basis. Uh, it was not left in good shape by the Liberals. They squeezed it. They squeezed it very hard, and they left structures that have been hugely problematic for us. So there's no question that the health care system needs to have a lot of attention. But my sense from this government is the direction they're going in, uh, the move towards more and more private delivery of services, even if it's still covered by OHIP cards, is going to bleed the system. And I think people should be very leery of what's been brought forward by Ford. Nadia, what would you like to leave us with on this? The way it is right now, the system, the status quo is untenable. We have to change the healthcare system. This hopefully is an answer. It's worth trying. It's worth making sure that patients get the kind of care that they deserve, get the kind of integrated care that spans the usual silos that the healthcare system has existed in, in for a long time. Francesca? I'm looking very much forward to an integration and to have the providers actually take hold and be held to account for managing those patients through the system, which is what I am reading when I hear the uh, the minister's announcement. Okay, and Dr. Bob Bell? I just hope that the incremental change, the incremental improvements that are being made on every day by great providers aren't going to be held up by this transformation that in other provinces has caused everything to kind of freeze for up to five years in Alberta, while the new super agency got its legs underneath it and everything else stopped. That's part of what concerns me. That was Libby speaking with Francesca Grasso of the group Patients Canada, Dr. Nadia Alam of the Ontario Medical Association, New Democrat MPP Peter Tabbins, as well as Dr. Bob Bell, a one-time Deputy Minister of Health and Long-Term Care. You're listening to the Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Komsikin for Jane Brown. The day after the announcement, Health Minister Christine Elliott spoke with Libby to explain the proposed health care changes, as we just heard on the Zoomer Week in Review. Meanwhile, Laura Tamlin-Watts of the Zoomer's advocacy group, CARP, shared her thoughts on the minister's remarks. Certainly, there's a lot of inefficiencies in our healthcare system. We know that home care, which you spoke about, has been a real challenge for people. We know that information is not getting past amongst doctors, hospitals, and home care teams. So that's encouraging in terms of coordination. It's also encouraging to see that when they're looking at the LINs, the the challenges about dollars available between different LINs may be addressed. And Can the- you explain what you mean by that? Right now, LINs have different calculations for how they decide how many, for instance, home care hours you might get. So if you were in one LIN, even in the same city, but are in a boundary, you're on one side of the street, you may get something like six or seven home care hours a week. If you're in the other LIN, even if it's just on the boundary on the other side of the street, you may not qualify 
for home care at all, which is nonsensical. And it's certainly not what we need in terms of predictability. So I think what we are looking at is a sense of more equitable distribution of those dollars to ensure that people do get the services they need and that they get them fairly. Now, that's all very encouraging information. We still have some questions about how it's actually going to work. Dr. Nadia Alam from the Ontario Medical Association, they're happy with this because it addresses their main concern, which is the continuity of care piece. And we also talked to Dr. Bob Bell, who was a former deputy minister, former CEO of UHN, and a cancer surgeon. He was concerned, well, what happens to great institutions like cancer care? I think Minister Elliott reassured us that it will stay in place, but also this has happened in other places. And what Bob Bell told me was that everything kind of freezes while they get this whole super agency thing happening. And what we're concerned, of course, is the care of people while we're in this transition. We heard Minister Elliott speak, and we've had conversations with other MPPs and public officials on this, and they all assure us that it will be, and the word they're using is seamless. I think that will be a great challenge for them to be doing any kind of transformation seamlessly, and particularly one as large as this. But it appears that they're keeping the patient experience front and center. We hope that in this seamless two to three year transition time that these things are not falling through the cracks and patients don't suffer. I will be interested to see which areas they move on first. And indicators that we have is the back end integration feels like that's going to be an early move and also their move towards more digital and e-health will be earlier moves. Again, both could be quite welcome, but there's some devil in the details that we really need to know more about. Anything else that um, you have a red flag about or anything else that you're really happy about? In terms of red flags, you know, we really rely on our CCACs, our community care access centers to be that kind of one point of entry. They've been abolished. Right. And so when we have had that, people are still uncertain where to go. So we have relied on those CCACs very heavily. They went away. It's quite unclear how we're supposed to negotiate that healthcare system now. So I'll be very interested to see how these points of entry are going to be clear for people who need that. Okay. Anything else, Laura? Well, we know the system isn't working. So a big, bold step is, you know, unsurprising and welcome. I think what you have to see is how it's really going to work over the next few months and the next few years. That was Laura Tamblin Watts of the Zoomers Advocacy Group, CARP. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Kompsik. You may have noticed some billboards around Toronto promoting the anti-vaccine movement, which appeared and then disappeared just as quickly. Toronto's Associate Medical Officer of Health called the controversial campaign concerning and said that it should prompt a discussion about banning ads that promote false or misleading messages. Libby spoke with Joe Mahevic, former Toronto City Councillor and Chair of the Toronto Board of Health, as well as family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. I'm dismayed because I believe that what we're seeing is a very small minority who happen to have a little money in their pockets and are trying to be vocal with it. And I'm sorry about that, because if you look at the science of vaccines, it saves millions of lives every year. And I'm not talking about vaccines as a whole. I'm talking about each individual vaccination saving millions of lives every year. 
You know, so this is in the face of a huge scientific body and a huge scientific and epidemiologic effort that shows the saving of millions of lives every year. I, it, it breaks my heart. Joe Mihevic, it, it's been brought up that perhaps these type of billboards should be outlawed. Does the city have tools to deal with anything like that? Uh, not really. It is unfortunate that uh, that they are up, of course. Uh, and the only the the good part of this, perhaps, is, is that the community conversation is now happening again. And maybe that's the that's the lesson here is is that every generation has to learn and relearn that vaccinations are an important part of, frankly, uh, a modern society. You know, Libby, a hundred years ago, do you know what the uh, the life expectancy was for the average Canadian, it was 47 years old. Today, it is 82 years old. Now, some of it is because of uh, better nutrition, better housing, better working conditions. But probably the biggest difference between uh, that caused this increase in life expectancy from 47 to 82 is the introduction of vaccines. That's how important they are to the health of, uh, of Canadians. And that's why uh, we need to have that community conversation now as urgently as ever so that we maintain what they call herd immunity so that we as a people uh, can really uh, fight back on these diseases that we don't want to uh, have come back into our, into our uh, human population. Of the serious reactions, the serious reactions, the vast majority of them were vomiting and diarrhea of the very, very small three in a million that actually had a serious reaction. So, so that's the point that we need to get out is that, is, is that vaccinations are not harmful to your health. There are the chances of a severe side effect, vomiting, diarrhea is so minor, but the health benefits, not just for you, but it's also for the community that you live and work with is absolutely important. We need to get that message out. That's a task that the Ontario public health community needs to seize itself of in the next few years. And I know that they are doing it. They were doing it while we were, while I was uh, sitting as uh, the chair of the Board of Health. I so appreciate that, Joe. To bring to life what three and one million means. I've been in full-time practice, 27 years, general practice, vaccinating children every day. I have never seen a serious adverse event from any vaccination. I have never seen a hospitalization as a result of a vaccination. Like to give a person a sense of what does three in one million mean and contrast that with measles where one in 1,000 children with measles will die from the disease. There's an allure, almost a, a sexual attraction, if you will, to, to being called different. I'm different. I'm unique. I, I looked at the information, and I'm so much better than the information. I came to my own conclusions, that, that sense of North American independence. And it's so misguided. If only that energy would go into places of genuine need. The group behind these billboards thank their donors. They have plenty of donors, or are you talking about the extra money we'll have to plow into education to get people... I'm talking about this. the people who actually made a conscious decision to devote their time and energy at whatever level to an anti-vaccination campaign, as opposed to something that is in true and genuine need. That's something that's damaging to people, you know, to suggest that vaccinations could potentiate any kind of harm. It doesn't. 
it's the diseases that potentiate a great deal of harm. And I'm just, I'm just lamenting aloud and ranting that it's unfortunate that these individuals are not devoting those same degree of resources to something that genuinely could benefit from it. That was former Toronto City Councillor Joe Mahevic with Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. You're listening to the Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Kopsikin for Jane Brown. As exciting as things are on Parliament Hill these days, there was also political news south of the border as the man who penned the art of the deal failed to strike one in Vietnam. U.S. President Donald Trump abruptly walked away from his second official summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Meanwhile, in Washington, Trump's one-time fixer and ex-lawyer Michael Cohen testifying that his former boss is a racist and a con man who lied throughout the 2016 presidential election campaign. So what's going on in U.S. politics? Commentator Michael Tobe and Professor Janice Stein from the U of T's Monk School of Global Affairs share their views. I was surprised because he seemed so desperate for a deal. Uh, the hype was huge. Uh, he seemed immune to everybody telling him that Kim Jong-un would never agree. Michael Cohen's testimony in Washington yesterday could have made him even more desperate. So I frankly thought he would just cave, in all honesty. Michael? I would rather that Donald Trump have walked away from the table with no deal than signing a bad deal, because you can't obviously trust the North Koreans. You know, the the communist regime that has been in place with Kim Jong-un, his father and his grandfather. So while I agree with Janice that it certainly looked like Donald Trump wanted to sign a deal, he wanted to obviously build upon his legacy and felt that this would be the best way to do it. I think we can at least give him a little bit of credit that if he was not pleased with the way things were being discussed and he was worried about the fact that the North Koreans had insisted upon U.S. sanctions being completely removed in return for him shutting down one of the nuclear facilities, at least he's thinking rationally, at least his people around him, including Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, are as well. And if it takes a longer period of time... That's perfectly fine by me, because if there's ever going to be a deal in place, and quite frankly, I don't see what they could do to actually create something like that, because the new North Koreans are just not going to denuclearize. It's not to their political advantage or military advantage. They're not going to do it. Okay, let's uh, move right along to Michael Cohen's testimony. Uh, Michael oh, Tobe, <laughs> is this dangerous to Donald Trump, or will all those people who support him and and love him just say, look, this guy's a liar, don't believe a word he says? Well, the latter part obviously will come into effect. We all know that sitting here, and all your listeners know that too. Whoever supports Donald Trump will continue to support him after the fact. I think we have to look at it this way. There's no question that, you know, Michael Cohen created some very damaging testimony claiming that Mr. Trump is a racist, a con man. You know, he brought out examples of terrible things he may have done. We certainly learned a few new things from Michael Cohen, but I don't think there were any major bombshells other than the fact that Michael Cohen's, you know, is very obviously frustrated with what's happened. And because he's heading to jail in the next few months, he realizes that he has nothing to lose. So he's just going to throw everything on the table. But we have to be realistic about this. Neither Michael Cohen nor Donald Trump are perfect angels. It really comes down to, I would say, an issue of partisanship or who you want to believe. Michael Cohen obviously has put things on the table that the anti-Trump or never-Trump contingent will be very, very pleased with. 
and just adds another layer to the puzzle. But those who are supportive of Mr. Trump or those who realize that Michael Cohen is just not a reputable person overall are going to obviously look at these issues, maybe take them with a very huge grain of salt, and say to themselves, yeah, but is this really the most trustworthy person we can have to attack Donald Trump? There are reputable you know, people. Okay, uh, uh, yes, Janice, uh, I, I, I don't think there's an equivalency. Michael Cohen uh, may be worse, but he's heading to jail. Trump is president of the United States. Janice, do you agree that, that people who support Trump will just continue to do that? I think it will change people's minds who are soft Trump supporters. That's that's where the change will come from. He has uh, a very committed base of people, and they're not going to change. But, you know, the next election is not going to be determined by the base in either party. It's going to be determined by soft supporters in the middle and by undecided. And those stories are really powerful. They just are. It makes it come alive. It makes it real uh, in a way that even the way he started out, when he labeled him, that's not effective, frankly. Everybody shrugs their shoulders when they hear that. But it's when he tells the stories that it really makes a difference. That was political commentator Michael Tobe and Professor Janice Stein from the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio, and here are some of the best calls of the week. Despite a major health care announcement from the province, the SNC-Lavalin affair and Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony before the Commons Justice Committee remain the focus of attention for our callers. Christine from Toronto spoke of potential job losses at the Montreal engineering giant. They need to remember how many people Lavalin employs. I think that's what Trudeau's been trying to balance out. He doesn't want the company to somehow go under and lose a lot of jobs for people. It just doesn't seem to be part of the discussion. It's more a gossip item. Bob in Etobicoke questioned the job loss argument. I know it's extremely important. Uh, I can understand them trying to protect the jobs. I just checked that the value of stock has gone down over $5 billion. But going about it the way they did was totally wrong, totally wrong. But he did it the wrong way because I don't consider him to be very, a very smart man at all in any way. <laughs> Tony in Niagara expressing some strong feelings about the Liberal government in light of Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony. Trudeau should resign, step down. It was very terrible what she did to that woman there. These Liberals are a bunch of thugs, and it's a fake government. They promised us everything. They gave us nothing. And I just can't understand why the RCMP hasn't investigated already, or have they? I can't believe this government could do this to us. Like, this is not the Canada of yesterday. Like, it's all changed the way it looks. And thank God there are people like Mrs. Jody that are around to fight for us. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Betty in Kitchener, outspoken in her support of Jody Wilson-Raybould. I believe that um, Trudeau really underestimated Jody when he put her in that position. He probably figured, 
oh, she's Aboriginal background, she'll be so happy, you know, we'll be able to meld her, which is basically the way the white man has fought for since they came over. Well, you know, we can control these Indians is sort of was their thinking. And I think he misjudged her, and I am so proud of her that she stood up and that she has ethics and, uh, you know, uh, it's what always happens to the whistleblowers. You know, we go after them and we, uh, they end up losing. And, uh, you know, kudos to her. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, also 96.7 FM, downtown. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Bob Comsikin for Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. You've been listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio with guest host Bob Comsick. Produced for MZ Media Limited by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Neimer. 